from our palatial recording facilities, high atop our mountain lair on a remote volcanic island, this is Talk Universe. I'm Sir Charles Schultz. And I'm Eliza, your co-host. This is our show for Wednesday, June 7th, 2017. Tonight's topic is Advanced Display Technologies. I know a lot of people are really interested in knowing if we're going to have those 3D holograms floating in midair and what sort of interesting displays we're going to be coming up with in the near term. We've been a long time waiting for really interesting and innovative display technologies. Now we have see-through displays, VR headsets, glasses you can put on that augment reality, flexible displays, and those floating holograms in midair. Are they really here? Well, let's have a look at all those different technologies and where they're going. Now, I remember when LEDs first came out and became available in things such as digital watches. There were no digital watches for a long time. When they first appeared, they were fascinating. Imagine something that simply glowed and presented your message. Before that, you really were limited to the hands on a watch or those flip card displays where the numbers turned over or something along those lines. There was, there was very little in the way of digital displays. Now we're surrounded by amazing display technologies, all sorts of things. And it looks like the end is nowhere in sight. In fact, we're reaching the point now where we actually can immerse ourselves in, well, imaginary worlds. I think that uh, everybody would agree pretty much that the most advanced version of this is to have something similar to the holodeck on Star Trek. We are awfully close to it in many ways, and we'll talk about how that works as well. There are applications not just in practical things around everyday life, but also in medicine where you'll be able to see through the corpse that you're dissecting or doing an autopsy on, or you'll be able to see right into the veins so that you can do a phlebotomy, get that needle into the vein properly. We can do some amazing things with displays right now, But we also have things coming up around the bend here, and some of them will amaze you. So we'll talk about that. Flexible displays you can roll up and uh, fold and put in your wallet, that sort of thing. Before we get rolling, I wanted to point out that we now have um, all of our previous episodes going up on YouTube. So we have a YouTube channel, Talk Universe 2. And you can go to that YouTube channel and hear our previous shows along with some graphics and images. And we've also, um, of course, made our presence known on Stitcher and Spreaker and iTunes. And, of course, you can always go to the site, talkuniverse.org, and listen to the shows directly there. So we're reaching out to a lot more venues. We're also adding transcripts. So those will be available on the site. It takes a lot of work to transcribe them, but we're getting them up on our, um, our blog. The Talk Universe blog is available if you just click the button at the top of our site. You can also make comments and suggestions there, as well as submitting them the normal way. Oh, Eliza. What do you need? How should our listeners contact us? Send your questions or comments to admin, A-D-M-I-N, at talkuniverse.org. You can also submit your material to talkuniverse6 at gmail.com. If you go to the Talk Universe website under contacts, you can reach us directly. So great, you have a number of options if you want to get your questions to us. How many questions are in the queue? We have three items in the queue. That's fantastic. So we've got some material to work with tonight. People obviously are listening and giving us some suggestions and some questions. We've also got some uh, Singularity Watch items as well. 
this is going to be a great show, and I know that people are fascinated by displays. And I've also um, I've got a book recommendation that will allow you to understand how a lot of this works that uh, is going to be kind of interesting as well. So let's get started. Now, I often don't spend a lot of time um, interacting with uh, Eliza. So, Eliza, how are you feeling? I am feeling quite well, sir. Great. Are you ready for the show? I would say everything is in order at this time. Well, that's fantastic. Well, I hope you're feeling well, and I'm looking forward to the things you're doing. You're pretty smart. I appreciate that. Okay, well, let's get down to business here. So let's look at this. Wearable technology is one of the things we really want to talk about, and we'll get into that momentarily. Um, A little while back, we had a thing called electronic paper, and that's one of the displays that didn't quite pan out. The thinking was we could make something that could replace paper, but it would be programmable. Imagine a paper-like device or substance that you could literally mail like junk mail, and when it got there, the flyers would have moving graphics and patterns and text. That's uh, It's kind of irritating when you get junk mail. Here you've got some sort of technological thing with a microchip and a bunch of stuff in it. And they were able to make electronic paper, but it just didn't pan out. But one of the advantages that it had was that it was foldable or rollable, flexible. So even though the technology did develop, it didn't go anywhere. But flexible displays are now becoming a big thing. If you look in some of the uh, trade shows, you'll see that they're making flexible televisions. You stick them to the wall with tape or magnets or whatever, and they're really very, very thin, less than a millimeter in thickness. That's an interesting technology, particularly because you can wrap displays on surfaces. That would have been a big thing a few years ago. Now it is really coming into its own. Um, We also see the transparent displays, as I mentioned. Transparent displays are fascinating because you have what looks like a plate of glass, a window. In many cases, people actually can hide a television in the bookshelf by making it the glass in front of the books because it is transparent until you turn it on, and it has OLEDs, or organic LEDs, as the light-producing elements in them. We've come so far, we can stick millions and millions of OLEDs in an array on a sheet as thin as glass that's transparent, and only when you turn it on can you actually see that it is the television, it is the display. There was a recent project done with some people who took a school bus, and they placed video panels transparent displays over all of the windows, and they programmed it using the Unreal Engine, a video game engine of first magnitude capability. And they made it look like the school bus was driving on the surface of Mars. And as you drove around in the city, it actually used GPS to figure out where it would be in the map of Mars that they had built. So it had some fascinating capabilities. You put students in the bus, you turned on this display, The windows shifted, and suddenly they were in space, and then they were landing on Mars. And when they drove around the planet, what they saw out the windows was the video game representation of the model of Mars and a a colony. So that sort of technology already exists. You can drive a vehicle around in an imaginary place and do so accurately. But, you know, these sorts of things are expensive right now and difficult to get your hands on in many cases. And I do want to mention some of the companies that are making these things possible. Uh, What really fascinates me, of course, is the ability to mix reality and virtual reality. And many of these technologies that we'll talk about 
allow you to do that in some interesting manners. And Eliza, what is the name of the first company that I mentioned? Emerging Display Technologies Corporation. Right, and I picked them at random out of a number of companies that make a lot of high-tech things. They make uh, touch screens, capacitive screens, uh, multi-touch screens, which allow you to put a number of fingertips on it and do things. They make um, displays for dashboards and vehicles and in sort of cell phones or point-of-sale terminals, all sorts of displays. And they have a good cross-section of the new technologies that I'm talking about, transparency, flexibility, touch interaction, that sort of thing. And they're pretty representative of the companies that we're seeing that make custom displays for things. But, you know, in a lot of ways, when we come up with these new technologies, many of them become very generic, like jelly beans. And when you build something, you simply say, I want one this size, this shape. You order it, they produce it, and then you program it with the content. Uh, Many of them end up in these um, terminals you see in the stores or the uh, devices you see in video games or kids' games these days. But a lot of it ends up in the control panels for industrial equipment, uh, like earth-moving machines now have amazing displays. People think of a tractor. They think, yeah, you've got a couple of big levers, some greasy handles and gears. You know, a lot of these um, industrial farm equipment devices and earth-moving machines now have very state-of-the-art displays. They have air-conditioned cabs, you know, electronic displays, all the comforts of home, because if you're going to be out in the field driving and plowing a couple thousand acres of something, you need to be comfortable for that sort of a venture. Of course, a lot of them are becoming automated these days, and they don't need the displays unless there's a human operator present. But what's really interesting about it is this. When the sort of technology we're seeing for displays ends up in the dashboard of a machine or the control panel of something in a factory or in the hands of your kids on a game, you have to wonder what's coming around the bend for the rest of us in the things that we use in everyday manners. I know that I saw a fascinating uh, display on a refrigerator, of all things, uh, when I was visiting a friend. He has a, a really nice Internet of Things web-connected advanced refrigerator, brushed stainless steel finish. And when he dispensed some water from the uh, ice maker, the metal lit up with a pattern of tiny dots that formed out temperatures, water levels, filter usage, and all of this other information. They had drilled tiny holes, probably with a laser, in the stainless and outfitted fiber optics into it. And so you didn't see the display under normal um, operation or conditions. When it became active, it looked like it just lit up in the middle of the metal. Interesting concept, and it worked very nicely. Of course, now we can lay a transparent display right on the metal, and you won't see it until the display comes on as well, and you haven't um, cut a hole in the stainless. And speaking of uh, interesting displays and cutting a hole in something, um, recently I saw an article where they had created tattoo ink that had properties where it would react to certain conditions in the body, and they are giving people tattoos that actually change their content in response to, let's say, their glucose level or their need for dialysis or whatever. So we're actually seeing dynamic tattoos as displays on people. They also have conductive inks and semiconductors that can be applied directly to the skin so that you could get a temporary electronic tattoo that is functional, that does something. We're really moving into an interesting turn of events with uh, body art. 
because of display technologies as well. I know some people have seen people who have their eyes tattooed black, so they don't have the whites of the eyes. The sclera is actually tattooed. I'm a little too squeamish for that myself. I don't see any real application for it. But I can say this. With some of the things we're seeing in display technology, it steps right over into the transhumanism side as well. I mean, eventually, you're going to see people with chameleon skin. That's definitely in the wings. So this pretty much uh, covers a lot of the physical displays that you see, such as see-through panels, glass that can change from um, just a window into a television, and tattoos that can be interactive with the conditions of your body or do something dynamic. And it also gets a little bit into the touch panels and other things. But what we really want to look at is how these things turn into wearable technology and those floating holograms. This is what really, really gets people. And when we're done talking about how you can display it, I also wanted to uh, put a few words in about how you create the content. And I'm going to talk about two pieces of software that are very popular. The Unreal Engine 4, which is an amazing video game generating engine. because we used, It can be used for design, for VR, for just about everything. And also another program that you can get called Blender that uh, actually allows you to create 3D models with dynamics and color and texture. And you can create Blender objects and put them in this Unreal Engine. So once you've got these displays, how do you put content in it? This is how you do it. We'll get into some detail about that in just a little while here. Now, one of the things I want to point out is some of these displays that I was talking about previously don't seem very high tech, but they are also often the heart of VR goggles like the Vive or the Oculus Rift or basically what goes into your cell phone. And this is important because without those sorts of displays, even though they seem primitive compared to what uh, we have in a lot of the other applications today, even though they seem primitive, they actually are the basis or the fundamentals for making those other displays such as the headsets and the VR sets work. We're also going to speak briefly about the 3D graphic contact lenses. We've got some fascinating articles coming up in our Singularity Watch. Eliza, how many articles do we have in our Singularity Watch this week? We have four Singularity Watch articles, sir. Very good. So we've got plenty to look at. Now, Microsoft has recently come up with a true holographic display that fits in your glasses. A lot of the things you see are not holograms at all. Most of what you see touted as holograms has nothing to do with lasers or holograms whatsoever. We'll talk about that in detail very shortly. Oh, Eliza. Tell me what you need. Please introduce the break. You are listening to Talk Universe. I'm Eliza, your co-host. We will be right back. We will be right back. And this is Talk Universe. I'm Sir Charles Schultz. Don't go away. I wonder if a Kickstarter project for a home holodeck would go over well with the listeners. Okay, Eliza, you're up. Welcome back from the break. I'm Eliza, your co-host. Yes, and we've got a lot of things to talk about, particularly holograms. So what is a hologram exactly? Initially, people think it's some sort of display floating in the air, but the fact is a hologram is made with a laser. A laser has always been required to create one, but none of the displays that you see typically are actually holograms. And that's because there have always been limitations to just exactly what you could do with it. Color was always a big issue with holograms. Most of them were monochrome, but there were tricks discovered that allowed you to change that, to get rainbows out of them, and that sort of thing. 
Holograms always require the use of laser light, which is generally one color only, and a piece of photographic film of some sort or a plate. And when you did this, let's suppose you filmed in a red laser light and then you decided to change to blue laser light to play it back. Well, a funny thing would happen. Because blue light waves are about half the size of red light waves, and because holograms use the interference of light waves, your image would be half as large when you made it blue. That's just, it's just not going to work. <laughs> Nevertheless, a true holographic display is rarely seen. Instead, people create the illusion. Instead, people often create the illusion of a hologram by creating a display that looks like what we think a hologram would be. So, almost all of the holographic displays you see really have nothing to do with holograms or lasers at all. There are optical tricks that make an image float in midair, and that's fine, that's fine. But the, the term has been conscripted and used in a way that wasn't really intended. I've got two particular companies that I call on for this sort of thing. Um, they usually will take real-world objects and overlay three-dimensional projections or graphics over them to give them a, a really unique uh, blend of the real and the virtual. And of the two companies that um, I found that produced really interesting display devices, one of them was called Virtual On, and it's a United Kingdom company. And they make all sorts of 3D displays. Now, some of these require, um, in the past, glasses, but... Uh, Actually, what they're doing now is they're using technologies that create 3D full-color images in midair, and generally it's done by reflecting off of a clear surface like a glass plate. In a lot of cases, you've got a, a display, like a flat panel display, above, and an angled plate of glass that you're looking through, and the display appears on the surface of the glass at a distance. So it looks like it's showing up in midair. It isn't actually. It's an illusion. But, you know, for all intents and purposes, it's fine. To get the 3D effect, there are a number of ways they do it. One is they use what's known as a zone diffraction plate or a zone plate. How many of you as children played with those little plastic printed images that were 3D and they had a corrugated plastic surface on the, um, on the outside of it? That is kind of what's being done, that sort of trick that directs part of the image to your left eye and part of the image to the right eye. And there are really two interleaved images, and each eye only sees what it's supposed to, and it creates the illusion of three-dimensionality. Um, a lot of us have seen pictures printed that way on a plastic surface. And really what happens is the picture is adhering to the back of the plastic. It's registered properly, so your eyes see it as 3D. This is similar to that. They have a display for video that does the same thing. It has a plate that diffracts part of the image to your left and part of the image to the right. And so when you look at the screen, it doesn't take any glasses to see 3D. There are limits to the technology, but it does work fairly well. So this is an illusion created by throwing one of these 3D displays on a reflective surface and then looking through it. And that's fine. But again, it's not a hologram. The virtual on creates a number of uh, displays very similar to venues for museums or shows. They're just small kiosks, you know. And you can buy these displays or rent them and set them up pretty quickly and get your content right there. Uh, it's not free-floating, walking-around sort of stuff. There are limits to the display angles. 
And some are 360, but it takes four screens reflecting down to create that illusion. Um, another one that I saw that looked really interesting was Glim Display. And they do ex exactly the same thing, but they also have other things as well. They have LCD, which is liquid crystal display, um, monitors that use no glasses and give you 3D. They have a virtual mannequin product, which is uh, basically projecting a person on a flat display that's animated, and it looks like a person's actually standing there talking to you. So we have a long way to go, to be honest, to get these sorts of things. There are holograms in midair, but really it's reflected on a surface in almost every case. Although the technology for making true holograms is arriving, the issue is very simple. How do you create an image in the middle of the air when there's nothing to reflect on? What is it that the light is coming from that isn't in the way of your field of vision? So it's a non-trivial problem, and it requires, in some cases, very precise optics or exotic materials such as metamaterials that have negative refractive index or something like that. Metamaterials are materials that have properties that are different from what physics might seem to dictate. Um, it's a clever application or twist on phase, or it's a little difficult to explain without knowing something of physics, and I'm not going to get deep into a physics discussion here because it's really about the illusion. But anyway, there are any number of displays that appear to create the hologram image in 3D floating in midair, and the technology is not quite mature yet, but it's getting very good. And I know that many people are aware that uh, they had people show up on stage, celebrities from time to time, as holograms from a remote location. And it takes a lot of cameras and a lot of broadcast equipment to get the angle and the lighting just right so they appear to be three-dimensional. But yes, it can be done. How far are we away? I'd probably, I would put a guess at three to five years before we'll actually see true displays floating in midair because of the difficulty of the problem. But it is beginning to happen. Now, there's an interesting trick that's done. By projecting brilliant enough laser light, you can actually ignite a dot in the air, and that dot glows. And this can be done by varying the gas content in the air, the inert gas. You can change the color a little. Uh, you can shine different colored laser light on this plasma dot that is created in midair. And those displays are rather interesting. Um, the only drawback is they can be intense enough to cause burns on your hand if you run it through the image slowly. Uh, this is um, a little bit dangerous, and there's a lot of refinement to go before that becomes really useful. If you were to put your face right down in it, you could probably cauterize your eyeball pretty quickly, and that's another concern. In times past, uh, just last 15, 20 years, there have been a number of displays created that made the illusion of a 3D image by projecting it on a mist. One system actually used condensed air. It had a cryogenic cooler. It would chill the air until it liquefied, and it would spray the mist into the air in a thin curtain. And the laser light, or projection source, would shine on this layer of mist. And so the image would hang in midair, and you could run your hand through it or whatever and interact with it fully. Well, that's rather clever, but it was kind of energy-intensive and not very friendly. Um, however, you know, again, it can be done. We're really in our infancy when it comes to this sort of technology, and it won't take long, I think, because of our new ability to fabricate, um, well, 3D printing figures largely in this, extremely fine structured materials 
that have different optical and electronic properties than we'd expect. But we do have displays that float in midair. Now, I'm going to get back to that in, uh, Microsoft article that I spoke about just a little while ago. Um, and I'm going to read right from the Engadget article here. You don't need an elaborate headset to experience augmented reality. And it goes through the, uh, the whole HoloLens thing, which really isn't a hologram at all. The, the technology is not really a laser. He said real holography, the author uh, John Fingus in the article writes, real holography requires a laser-generated 3D image, and it's no mean feat to stuff that into something you can comfortably wear. Well, now what Microsoft has done is to create something that steps in and performs the function of the photographic plate, the, uh, the plate that you have to illuminate with the laser, by using liquid crystals to do the job. If you change the pattern of the liquid crystals, you change the diffraction of the laser light. And so this is something that a lot of people who aren't familiar with holograms don't know, is that it's the interference of the light waves in a developed piece of film. But in this case, they've got a medium that you can change, the liquid crystal. So they've got a, a silicon wafer with liquid crystal on it, and all of the devices to produce the display are in the glasses, but the electronics to drive it is very complicated and has to remain outside the glasses at this point. They've done a couple of tricks to, because of the intense computation it takes to make this image, they actually use a very fast uh, graphic processing unit and they look at where your eye is tracking and they do the most rendering where you're looking. In other words, they fake the resolution by making it sharp at the spot you're looking at and leaving the rest uh, with a lower resolution. But it does do the trick, and it is workable. Uh, this doesn't mean this is what they're going to manufacture, but it is a method of doing it, and it has been, it's been done. But it was a really tough push, given the technology we have. So the question is, how close are we to creating the holodeck? Not nearly anywhere near what we would imagine. The glasses, while they do work and are holographic, have still fairly low resolution, although they fake it well enough. The issue is very simple. We would need something that literally created a volume of illusion as large as a room and something that would be seamless. It would take over 560 megapixels per eye to simulate the resolution of the human eye. Now, we could probably get away with a half or a quarter of that pretty easily. But if we were even looking at 12 megapixels per eye, which is not unreasonable. There are 12 megapixel cameras commonly available. If you look at it that way, then each eye would have 3K by 4K uh, resolution, basically, in the image, 4K in width and 3K in height. And you'd have two such cameras or image generators to make that happen. And that, again, that's not out of range. We have graphic cards that can do that. And it isn't too terribly high-end. I mean, there are gaming systems that are available for it. But what we run into is getting that image to be in mid-air. And the problem is, we just don't know how to do it yet. We just don't have the technology. So we resort to the, the best intermediate way of doing it, and that is we create glasses you can look through that have VR, that uh, put the real world as a, as a look-to point, and then insert the graphics over it. Now, this actually isn't too terribly difficult. There are systems that allow you to do that. The Connect system is one of those things that works fairly well. The resolution isn't great, but it does do it. The idea is this. When you look at your room, it has a certain 3D shape. And if you're going to project 
oh, any sort of an image over the room, realistically, the 3D shape of your room has to be able to block out part of the image, just as real things can hide around the corner or behind something on your desk. So the computer has to know the 3D shape, volume, and location of everything in your room before it can even begin to generate the graphics. And then the elements of your room have to be worked into the graphic process. You can begin to get an idea of the complexity of making um, your room part of an augmented reality system. It gets complex fast. Now, when we look at how we can actually put numerous people in the same simulation, it's really much easier if we have a well-known and rendered environment so that the real world is already modeled in the computer and numerous people can receive different visuals generated at different angles or viewpoints and overlay them all simultaneously. Numerous people playing video games these days do that. They have even theme parks you can go to, or I should say video game parks, where you walk around inside the video game in a VR system. And the rooms that you're in are basically bare shapes, painted gray. So there is a table, but if you look at it without the glasses, it's just a gray table. If you look at the walls, they are not textured or complex. They're simply plywood. So we are really in the infancy of the hologram sort of world. So when we come back from the break, we're going to look at uh, visual persistence displays, and we're going to look at how, right now, the best way to play this thing is to overlay a gray, blocky world with a totally fake video-generated world. Eliza? Greetings. It's nice to hear you. Please introduce the break. You are listening to Talk Universe with Sir Charles Schultz. Don't go away. We will be right back soon. Yes, advanced display technologies. There are interesting things to hear. Stick around. I'm Sir Charles Schultz, and this is Talk Universe. Welcome back to Talk Universe. Let's get right into the advanced displays where we have virtual worlds merged with reality and the visual persistence displays. Two wildly different things, but each has its own place. And I think that when you look at visual persistence, this is something a lot of people haven't really seen very much of. We're going to talk about that. It's really very simple, but it actually can do a heck of a job creating a nice illusion of images in midair. When you were a kid and you played with sparklers, you noticed that your eyes saw a trail in the air after the sparkler was waved around in front of you. This is known as visual persistence. Your eyes were adapted to the dark, and the light of the sparkler burning was bright enough to leave a trail that persisted or remained behind as the cells in your eye in your retina that detect the light had to recover. Visual persistence has a long form and a short form, and the long form is from intensity. Too much intensity leaves the image hanging around as the cells recover their ability to sense, and this is actually a chemical process. But in the short term, your cells can't respond as quickly as a digital device. So if a light source that is being switched on and off rapidly were to run rapidly by your eye, it would leave a trail that is turned on and off, like dots and dashes. This can be used to create a display. Visual persistence displays typically use rather bright LEDs, which are turned on and off very rapidly, 
And they usually have them in a line. I could read a listener question. I think we'll do that in just a little bit, Eliza, okay? Whatever you wish, sir. Thank you so much. What happens is this line of LEDs is moved rapidly by either spinning like a propeller or spinning around the surface of a cylinder. And the LEDs are turned on and off very rapidly by a computer controlling them. And they can have red, green, and blue and create full white light images or whatever. They create the illusion of full-color graphics in midair. But what's really happening is the LEDs are swooping by at high speed, just like the sparkler in motion, and leaving the visually persistent image behind. Visual persistence displays actually work very well, and many of them are available on the market right now. One type fits in the spokes of your wheels on your bicycle or on the hubs of the wheels on your car, and as you drive, it seems that there's a video screen hanging in there, creating an image. A few years ago, there was a hobbyist by the name of Bob Blick who created what was called the propeller clock, and it was literally a stick of LEDs spinning at high speed like a propeller. And he had a digital display written on it that made the hours and minutes hand of a clock along with the display for the uh, 1 through 12. And it uh, looked like a whirling pattern of light in the air that was literally the display of a clock face. And it looks like magic. And this sort of device is the basis of the visual persistence effect. We now have them as large cylinders here and there that spin and have the effect of a video screen wrapped in there, and it looks like there's a person standing in it, or text or images or whatever. Variations on the theme allow more than one strand of LEDs at once, so that you can have layers of depth in your display, and those work quite well. Um, well, it's a simple enough principle, and it works very nicely. I recently saw a series of synchronized, I believe it was five of them, propeller clock sort of displays side by side, spinning in opposite directions so the sticks of LEDs would not collide, and it made a long, continuous banner. Very impressive and interesting thing to see. So this is a simple technology that can go a long way, but of course it has the disadvantage of having an object whirling through the air like a blade or like a propeller, so you can't put your hand in the middle of this display. That would be bad. On the other hand, it does look really good. And they're usually behind plexiglass. Now let's get down to the head displays, like the Oculus Rift and the Vive and the others that are available. The Google Cardboard, which takes a cell phone and a cardboard stand and a couple of lenses and does the same thing. VR headsets. I mentioned earlier that there were game places you could go, like game parks. And in it, they have a series of empty rooms with simple things in them. Handles, ladders, doors, tables all painted anonymous gray, and when you put on your headset, it synchronizes your location in the game, and everything around you becomes part of the set dressing because it gets overlaid with the graphic. Well, that works quite nicely, and that's a, a simple way of doing it. And you can have numerous people participating in the game simultaneously under these conditions, and it's very simple to do. Now, the more channels of sensory input you have, of course, the more realistic it becomes. And I remember flying a friend on one of the wingsuit programs, and when he crashed into the side where the bushes were, I actually ran a, a branch with a bunch of leaves over him rapidly, so he would actually feel the crash, and it was quite a surprise to him. So the one thing that I haven't mentioned at this point is this, and it's called content creation. 
Usually, if you have a video or something, it's easy to put it in your uh, computer and play it or project it on the TV. Or if you have one of those uh, video projectors, to throw it on the wall or the side of a building even. And you've seen the dynamic dancing buildings with the things swimming over them and the buildings changing shapes. This is certainly a visual display technology that's pretty interesting. Well, here's the thing, though. Without some method of creating the 3D models, the objects, the programs that feed these devices, you're really left with a fancy paperweight. So how do we go about creating the content? Now, there are a number of ways of doing it, and many people rely on computer modeling programs, and there are a number of them that you can get for free online. Uh, Pavre is a three-dimensional rendering and modeling program that works quite nicely. But it doesn't run in real time like a movie or a game. It's meant to produce individual images like pictures. Nevertheless, it can be used for creating your models and rendering, or even creating movies. Another one that I really like um, is Blender. And Blender is a free download. Although, you know, I suggest you donate something, five bucks or whatever, to help out their uh, costs. It is an open source rendering engine that can produce everything, including games very nicely. It's a 3D modeling and rendering program. And this is one of the things you use to create the objects, the settings, and the people, the characters inside your virtual worlds. Uh, it's used extensively for video games right now and virtual content creation and even movies. There are a number of programs that are very good. Maya 3D is one of them, although that one's going to cost you some money. But now you get down to how you create the worlds that these things are in. And how do you bring it all together? Many people resort to video game engines. The engine is the part of the video game that creates the scenery, renders it realistically, does object collision so that you can't walk through a wall, for instance. Um, it makes the physics work. It makes the animation work. Video game engines have been very important for years. And there is a company that makes an astounding engine. And it's Epic Games. They are involved, um, in the past, they were involved in creating many of these standard video games that we all have played and known and loved. And they kept creating what they called their Unreal Engine in a better and better iterations. They're up to uh, an Unreal Engine 4 uh, later version right now. And it's a free download also. It's all open source. And they have a simple model. Whatever you create, if you turn it into a game or a product, they only want 5%. Wow, that's incredibly reasonable. And let me tell you something. If you decide to look at this, go to the Unreal site and look up, or the Epic Games site, and look up Unreal Engine 4, or UDK, the Unreal Development Kit. You're going to be fascinated by what you see and all the capabilities it can bring you. Well, if you get addicted to this thing, you'll spend days in front of the computer making things, animating them, bringing them to life. These are the tools you need to create the content for these advanced displays. Now, I have to warn you, programming and creating game characters and 3D graphics is incredibly addictive, particularly if you have a VR headset. You will find yourself immersed in your own personally created worlds or games in no time. And I encourage people to learn about this because this is where our world is going. You need to know at the ground level, what the tools are and what's happening. I definitely would encourage you to at least go look at the sites and see what's there. 
If you decide to become an addict, <laughs> I will say this. There are two programming languages you probably will want to learn right away, and they aren't that difficult. C++ or C Sharp, one of the C programming languages, would be a necessity if you're going to be working with the scripting and the programming behind the Unreal Engine. It allows you to do things um, that you couldn't do any other way. And the other one that I really enjoy is the Python language. Uh, my favorite version is 2.73 because they changed it radically with version 3, and I don't want to lose compatibility with some of the things that I've done before. Just the same, Python programming language and one of the C languages like C++ or C Sharp, I recommend them highly. So go online, have a look at Pavray, P-O-V-R-A-Y dot O-R-G, Pavray.org, to get an idea of what uh, modeling and rendering software looks like. And go to epicgames.com, E-P-I-C-G-A-M-E-S dot com, and have a look at the Unreal Development Kit, Unreal Engine 4. There are also a number of demonstration videos on YouTube for that. And then go to blender.org, and it's just the way it sounds, B-L-E-N-D-E-R dot O-R-G, and have a look at the software there. And if you do get so interested that you want to learn to do it, you'll also want to download um, the Python language. And again, I recommend uh, version 2.7.3. That's probably my favorite. And look at the C programming language, uh, C++ or C Sharp. There's a lot to learn there. And there's a book online for that as well, the Kernigan and Ritchie uh, handbook. But if you start looking for C and the uh, manual, you'll find that through Google. Now, I have a book recommendation, and it's um, directly related to the display subject. But it isn't a later book. It's an earlier book, and there's a reason for that. So, Eliza, what is our book recommendation this week? This week's book is Active Matrix Liquid Crystal Displays. It was written by Willem Denbor. This book was published in 2011 by Elsevier. Now, it sounds a little odd that something as advanced as our displays and technologies, I would suggest a book that's six years old. In reality, there's a very good reason. It contains some fundamental information. When we're looking at displays, we have to understand some concepts such as multiplexing, and how they get those displays to work. And it has to do with rows and columns. Well, liquid crystal displays use rows and columns printed on the glass cover plate and base plate, and they intersect at right angles like a grid. So you're going to learn how it is they use this same method for every sort of display. The laptop computer display you have, the big screen TV you have, it doesn't matter if it's OLEDs or vacuum fluorescent or any sort of other device, whether it's a laser, whether it is standard LEDs, liquid crystals, they all use the same geometry and arrangement. And so I recommend this book because not only does it explain the technology behind it and how it works, but it also makes clear to you this is the same sort of thing that is used in the holographic displays. They use a liquid crystal base. So this sounds like a primitive book, but I actually, I believe that this is the best way for you to get into the subject and understand how it all works. So, Active Matrix Liquid Crystal Displays by Willem Denbor, 2011 by Elsevier. 
very good book for the subject. And on a final note with displays, you should look up drones. Drone technology is now providing us with the ability to fly 500 to 1,000 drones, each carrying LEDs, in formation in the night sky and producing stunning displays. They become animated pixels. What an amazing idea. Our world is becoming magical in so many ways. Let's not let the bad news get us down. Let's look to the innovations and the improvements and the things that will make our lives better. So right after our break, we're going to get down to the Singularity Watch. Eliza, how many Singularity Watch articles do we have? We have four Singularity Watch articles, Charles. Very good. Let's uh, get down to those items and have a look at what's changing in our world. Eliza, please introduce the break. I'm Eliza. This is Talk Universe, and we will return after the break. There are more interesting things to hear in a few minutes. That's right. Stick around. We'll get right down to the listener questions and suggestions and our Singularity Watch. I'm Sir Charles Schultz. This is Talk Universe. See you shortly. Okay, Eliza, you're up. Welcome back to Talk Universe. Here is Charles. Thank you for that. Okay, we're going to get started with our Singularity Watch. So, it's time for the Singularity Watch. This is the Singularity Watch on Talk Universe. We have four articles tonight. Indeed it is, and they're going to be good articles. I think you're going to enjoy these. Okay, please read the first Singularity Watch article. Society is destroying and rebuilding itself for the networked age. This article was published in Singularity Hub. It was written by Aaron Frank, June 4, 2017. Now that's an interesting way of putting it. Rebuilding itself for the networked age. Destroying and rebuilding itself. Well, actually they have a lot of information that determines that this is the case. We are looking at a situation where any individual has the power to reach anyone on Earth. They can all do it. It just depends on how clearly you spread your message and how engaging it is. Uh, they were looking at the, the Turkey incident back last summer when the Turkish coup failed. The, uh, the armed forces were trying to overthrow the government and the president used his cell phone got online and sent a message that actually prevented it from happening. These citizens stood up and stopped a military coup, and it was all because of the network. So this is pretty fascinating. Social media has proven to be a really powerful thing, and the structure of information flow in societies is being rebuilt, basically. Now, there's a writer, Joshua Cooper Ramo, who makes a convincing argument that they, the signatures are of the same historical inflection point. He's written a book, The Seventh Sense, which was published months before the coup in Turkey and the U.S. election of Donald Trump, and provides an explanatory framework for these types of geopolitical surprises. Basically, they feel that the power of social media is being demonstrated in a way how citizens communicate and organize political demonstrations, and this is something that never could have happened before. So the structure of our society is being changed because of the network. 
And they say, in summary, that the power and influence is now concentrated and distributed all at once. That sounds pretty paradoxical, but that appears to be the way it is. They also state that the world is complex, but not complicated. Well, I think that there are some people who would disagree with that, but we'll go with that for now. Read the next Singularity Watch article, please. Limitless lab-grown blood is tantalizingly close after 20 years. This article was published in Singularity Hub. It was written by Shelley Fan June 1st, 2017. This is an excellent article. This is something pretty amazing. Now, if I could summarize it. What are we talking about? The ability to make human blood in large quantities. Exactly right. Thank you, Eliza. The ability to make human blood in large quantities. This is something that has been eluding us for ages, and they've been working on this for about 20 years. You'll know that in some religions, they do not allow them to take transfusions because the the life of the organism is in its blood. And basically, you can sum that up by saying this is a recognition of the fact that microbes, viruses, infections, everything can be in the blood that you receive, and you can gain a sickness from that without any intent, and it's completely out of your control. So blood substitutes have been made. Well, now they have the ability to literally take your skin cells or fat cells and convert them to stem cells, and then using a series of seven different chemical messengers, they can program the cells to become potent blood producers. You can literally make the bone marrow cells and inject them. And this also brings another interesting point. Now that we can essentially just about create unlimited quantities of your own blood by cloning it, we also have the ability to take a sample of your tissue, and if you have a genetic disorder with the blood, we can genetically edit your cells, create stem cells from them, and make new marrow where the damage has been repaired. This means the end of many blood diseases, even genetic ones, with some actually rather straightforward procedures. They go through a process of educating the blood cells so that they know when the cell starts, it's a special cell on the walls of a large blood vessel, the dorsal aorta. And these chemical signals program them into immature or baby blood stem cells. And then these conditions prompt the birthing process. They're still unclear. They're working on it. And this has been why it's so hard to do but they don't have the full capacity to reboot the blood system yet. So they go through a programming system to make them learn how and when they should reproduce blood cells. So a number of cues are used to program them. This is what they're studying right now and refining. But now we're reaching a point where it may be possible to create as much blood as you need on demand. What an amazing development. Now, this work was done by a couple of doctors on this team, a Dr. George Daly at Harvard Medical School, and he points out the chance of a healthy sibling giving you good blood marrow would be, or bone marrow, would be one in four. For a stranger, it's about one in a million. He also worked, and he wrote an article for Nature that said they're tantalizingly close to being able to make a limitless supply using the uh, healthy tissue from the patient. Um, also, Dr. Rauhichi. Sigamura at the Boston Children's Hospital 
who authored one of the studies with Daly, says, this step opens up an opportunity to take cells from patients with genetic blood disorders, use gene editing to correct their genetic defect, and make functional blood cells. So here we are, right, right at the end of a long fight to find replacement blood. Eliza, please read the next Singularity Watch article. Wearable PET brain scanner enables studies of moving patients. This article was published in Kurzweil AI Net. It was written by Kurzweil Accelerating Intelligence May 23, 2017. Now, this is something interesting. Anybody who knows how they study the operation of the brain is familiar with what's known as the PET scanner, the positron emission tomography device. The brain scanner is pretty big. You, you can't move this thing around. But what they have come up with is a wearable PET scanner that allows us to see what's in the brains of people or animals that are moving around. This is a major development because now we have taken something that basically is anchored to a concrete slab in a hospital and turned it into a device that can be worn on your head. In many cases, and this is called the AMPET, the Ambulatory Microdose Positron Emission Tomography Scanner. Uh, Microdose because in normal cases you use tagged glucose molecules and they have a positron-emitting compound that breaks down once it's in your brain. The problem is they use um, enough of this material that there could be damage from the low dose of radiation. When you're using this ambulatory device, it's much closer to your head and can read a much lower dose of the tagged glucose, so it's safer for you as well. In the initial one, they had a counterweight system supporting it. They also made one small enough to fit on the head of a rat as it ran through a maze and they could measure its brain activity. So we now have uh, next-generation positron emission tomography systems that you literally can wear on your head. The, uh, the rat-sized one called the Rat Cap, the Rat uh, Cap Project was at Brookhaven and funded by the Department of Energy Office of Science. Um, Brookhaven lab physicists made some of the uh, technology available for them. And this is a real interesting development. Read a Singularity Watch article, please. Plants have cells that function as a brain and are able to predict the weather in order to decide the best time to sprout. This article was published in Mail Online Science and Technology. It was written by Phoebe Weston, June 6, 2017. Now, this is something that will really get some of the vegetarians moving around. Plants have cells that function as brains. They actually can make predictions about the best time to sprout. There are groups of cells, clusters of cells, inside certain plant sprouts. In this case, they were looking at a type of crest known as Arabidopsis. And they found that there were clusters of cells within the sprouts in the seeds that had the ability to process the conditions under which they would best sprout, to literally predict the weather. Shades of Turing machines, you know, we had an article a couple of shows back where I talked about biological computing. Here is an active uh, biological computer that lives in plant sprouts. This is pretty interesting because the programming of that brain would have had to have happened over time. And the study was published in the National Academy of Sciences. Uh, the scientists from the University of Birmingham have shown small groups of cells within the plant embryo operate in a similar way to the human brain. 
So this decision-making center contains two types of cells, one that promotes seed dormancy and the other that promotes germination. They communicate with each other by hormones, and they decide whether or not to act. Similar groups of cells work in our own brains. I don't know where this study is going, but uh, this is fascinating stuff. Plants have programs, and there it is, laid out in black and white. So that has been our Singularity Watch. Thank you, Eliza, for that. Uh, you did well. Why, thank you, sir. Now, let's get down to the user questions. How many questions do we have in the queue? At this time, I see three questions left. Charles. Fantastic. Please read a listener question, Eliza. Ketan from Indapur asks, what is the boundary between the Earth's atmosphere and the vacuum of space? Ah, yes. Actually, there is no boundary. The only thing that's keeping the atmosphere on the Earth, there isn't a, a wall or anything, is gravity. Um, if you imagine super balls being poured into a box, they all fall. They land at the bottom, but they'll bounce off of each other as they come down. Air molecules are the same way. There is nothing making them float around. They literally want to fall to the dirt. But they're bouncing off of each other because of their temperature. The air gets thinner and thinner as you go up in altitude, and nothing stops it from literally blowing off into space except the gravity. Uh, solar wind is trying to blow it away, and light pressure is trying to move them away. But the air molecules are not at escape velocity, so they don't go anywhere. So there is no boundary. All right. Please read the next question. Dan from Jonesboro has submitted a show suggestion. You should do a show on material science. Given your expertise and knowledge on various aspects of material science. Well, Dan, thank you for the suggestion, and I think I will be doing exactly that. There's a lot to talk about there. That's a, that would be a great show. Could you read a listener question, Eliza? Steve from Catskill asks where the Earth got its water from. Oh, I love that question. Um, the Earth got its water from its inside. When the Earth was formed, like the other planets, there were volatile materials such as ammonia and methane and hydrogen trapped in it. And the ammonia breaks down under heat to make hydrogen and nitrogen. The nitrogen ends up in the atmosphere. The hydrogen reacts with the chemicals underground and makes water. It takes oxides from minerals. Methane does the same thing. Hydrogen does the same thing in a raw form. Methane polymerizes and makes petroleum, and the water underground acts as a supercritical solvent. It dissolves quartz and salts and siderophile metals and precious metals. And that's where the veins of native metals that we get on the surface come from. The water dissolves copper, um, silver, and gold in quartz, and when it crystallizes, those veins are formed. So the water came from inside the planet. A little bit came from space, but most of it came from the chemistry in the magma in our planet. How many questions are in the queue? My question queue was emptied. Fantastic. We've used all the questions and all the Singularity articles. Well, at this point, I'd say it's just about time to wrap up the show, and I've really enjoyed this one. Um, please do go to our YouTube channel and subscribe, and go to our other channels and subscribe. Look at our blog. I think that you'll find some fascinating things. And send me your questions and listen to the show. This is a great show, and I know a lot of people listen to it every week, and I'm hoping to grow our listener base. Um, in fact, we've been doing this almost a year now. It's hard to believe. So, Eliza, it's time to end the show. Thank you for listening to Talk Universe. We hope that you have enjoyed the show. 
Please listen again next week. Fantastic. Our next show will be on mathematics and thinking. We'll have an examination of math and language. What's so different about the two? What's the same? From our palatial recording facility, high on our mountain lair, on a remote volcanic island, this has been Talk Universe. I'm Sir Charles Schultz, and thank you for listening. Join us again next week.